Good morning to you. Take your Bibles if you would, and let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. It's been so wonderful to be in these narratives as we prepare for the holidays this week, especially with Thanksgiving week upon us and the great communion time Wednesday night as we begin to prepare our hearts for the corporate time together around the Lord's table. We find ourselves uh, continuing in the narrative, and of course, we left uh, last week with Mary heading back home after she had, of course, had the announcement and then went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. What we noted last time was the kind of worship that God loves. And when we talk about worshiping God, we, we always say there is a highest form of worship. Of course, everything you do in your life, if you ascribe to God's supreme worth in everything, then that is worship. And you can do that with all of the way you live. Everything in life can be a way of you offering yourself to the supreme worthiness of God as His servant, and that is worship. And of course, we worship by the praise of our lips. We worship by serving one another and sacrificing. And, uh, and all those ways are uh, expressions of worship. But the highest form of worship is simply to believe God and submit to what He says. That's it. To believe God and submit to what He says. And that's what we saw last time when we left Mary. She had prepared herself for the explosive and effusive expression of worship that came out of her heart because she had heard God's Word and she manifested the heart of true honor and homage to God. I believe it and I submit to it. I give my life over to it and I trust that it is a God of righteous character that gives me the commands. That's it. God loves that kind of worship. The obedience of faith. And He affirms it by His Word and by a clear conscience and by usefulness in the kingdom. And we saw as well that if humility expresses itself, it always has those two qualities to it. The exaltation of God's honor and the honor of His Word. The proclamation of His Word which He loves to honor. People who are humble speak the truth. People who who worship God, actually love the truth and love to submit to it. They may struggle with it like anyone else. They may battle with it like anybody else. But in the end, true worship in the heart of a believer always results in a humble submission to it and telling other people about that same truth. Boldly proclaiming it, exalting the honor of God's word and telling his word to other people. We also saw from Mary's song, which she She spoke at the time and it became a song in Israel and is recorded for us here by Luke. We also saw there that the two most wonderful realities about God that that he wants you to believe. I mean, if you want to boil faith down to its core issue, it comes down to this. Is he a God of righteous character so that when he makes a promise, he'll keep it? And is he a God powerful enough to do what he says? Be a terrible thing for God to say I promise this, and then not be faithful to carry it out. It'd be a horrific thing if God said, I will do this, but then not have the power to carry it out, and know He doesn't have the power. That would be deceptive, horrific. It would be be cruel. God loves it when we believe 
about Him, that He is righteous. And when He says something, it is a promise you can count on, not because of the words you heard, not because of your evaluation of it, not because you have seen other people in circumstances have the fruit of it, but because He is God and the kind of God who gives those promises is the kind of God that cannot fail. He loves it when you exalt His character. And He loves it when you Manifest that in obedience because he has the power to carry those things out. You're not afraid. You don't fear. You move forward in faith. Hebrews 11.6 says it like this. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. There it is. There's the twin realities. Must believe that he is. That is to say, his character is how he's revealed it to be. He's faithful. He cannot lie. He's truthful. He's righteous. And he's the rewarder of those who seek him. He can produce what he promises. He can accomplish it. That's what we saw with Mary. And as we move now in Luke's narrative back to Zacharias and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist... We see some of these same realities come alive in, in the expression of worship that Zacharias gives over the birth of his son. I've entitled this message, A Prophet Lives, A Mute Speaks, and A Covenant Triumphs. A Prophet Lives, A Mute Speaks, and A Covenant Triumphs. First of all, let's look at the birth of John the Baptist. A Prophet Lives. Verse 57 now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there is no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. <laughs> Stop right there. A prophet lives. Gabriel had said it, he would be anointed by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Spirit from his mother's womb. He would be a prophet in Israel. And he had announced that he would go before the Son of God, the Messiah, and prepare people's hearts. He was going to speak truth and prepare people's hearts. Mary, by the way, is most likely there when John the Baptist is born. The text doesn't say, but we can surmise some things. Certainly, we can't be absolutely sure, but... But that's only because she's not mentioned on the eighth day and the circumcision. She's not mentioned in the narrative. But she still could be included in the relatives group that's mentioned in verse 58, her neighbors and relatives. You remember verse 56 indicated that she stayed with Elizabeth for three months and then headed home. Gabriel had told her that Elizabeth was in her sixth month. That was when Mary was visited by Gabriel, and that's mentioned back in verse 36. And so there'd be no other reason for Mary to plan for a three-month trip unless she was planning to go there and be there for the birth. That's why she stayed there so long, no doubt. And so she was probably there for the birth, maybe helped with a few more days, and then headed back home because, again, it, she had been there already quite some time. She may not have stayed then for the circumcision on the eighth day, but she may have. 
The reason Luke notes Mary's departure before he gets into the narrative of John's birth is just to complete the narrative regarding Mary and her time with Elizabeth. So when he gets into John's birth narrative, he doesn't have to go back and focus on other things that are happening with Mary. Uh, she, she, Luke can just focus now on Zacharias and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. And so that's how Luke does it. He puts the birth narratives back and forth here. Announcement, announcement, then singing and rejoicing, and then birth, and then more singing and rejoicing, and then another birth, and then more singing and rejoicing. He's just paralleling them together here for his purpose in showing them side by side. Nobody knew what had happened to make Zacharias mute. We know that from verse 22, except that they knew he had seen a vision. And so here, verse 58, her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her. In other words, they had to hear it when, it was, when the birth was just about upon them. You remember that when Elizabeth found out she was pregnant, she went into seclusion for five months, it says in verse 24 and 25. And in that five months in seclusion, she was kind of on her own, just pondering these things in her heart and beginning to think about what this might mean for her and the family. And notice verse 58 says that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her. It's interesting. Uh, Luke uses the same word that Mary used at the beginning of her song, my soul exalts or magnifies. This is a very, very similar terminology here. And basically he's saying, look, it became obvious or evident that an old couple with a closed womb, beyond childbearing years, God did, a, did the impossible and miraculously allowed her to bear a child, and the child has now arrived. So now, the mercy of God has become richly evident. That's the idea. It's now the next level. The baby's here. It's not just an announcement anymore. It's a reality. And so, some of your translations say, God has shown His mercy well, the word is magnified. He displayed it in a magnificent way, richly evident. And it says they were rejoicing with her. Of course, this is no ordinary excitement about a birth. Gabriel had predicted that at his birth you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice. Verse 14 of the same chapter. But Elizabeth and Zacharias' tears went way deeper. Because they had remembered what no one else knew, that Gabriel also had predicted that their son would be great in the sight of the Lord, verse 15. And that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. But most importantly, he would be the one whose proclamation and life softened the hearts of people who needed to repent in Israel. Including leaders. Remember when John the Baptist starts preaching, the leaders, the Pharisees come out to hear what he's preaching. And he says, oh, who told you to come out and repent, you brood of vipers? Not a seeker-sensitive approach. Who told you to repent? This was his message. I'm trying to soften your hardened hearts. I want to turn many in Israel back to the Lord their God. So Zacharias and Elizabeth are... Their tears are profound. This is the forerunner. This is amazing. We don't know how this is going to be. They were simply overcome with joy. And what's really fascinating is that even at the birth, Zacharias can't yet mouth the words. Elizabeth is, of course, bearing the child and rejoicing with the relatives. And everybody's speaking and everybody's singing and lifting up their voices, but Zacharias couldn't yet give voice to his joy. He is still mute. Must have been some humbling days. 
those eight days, beyond what he'd already been humbled over nine months. So there was joy over his birth, but there's also some shock over his name. Some shock over his name, verse 59. It happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. Now, naming sometimes took place at the circumcision. Uh, Sometimes, not always, but history tells us that it was often the case that if they hadn't named the child, then at the circumcision, that was the official time. And then relatives and family members would come and they would come for the ceremony because this was, of course, in accordance with the law of God given to Abraham in Genesis 17. All of your sons will be circumcised. And it was a sign of being part of the nation under the covenant of God made with Abraham. So it was a party, a big party, and friends and relatives would come and extended family members and they would make it a celebration. And if you named the child then, it was customary to take the father's name or the grandfather's name. And this boy was special because Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed and prayed and prayed and hadn't had a child. So now God had given one. Surely this is going to be the namesake. This is going to be the son who takes the grandfather or the father's name. Surely he would be Zacharias. God had opened the womb. And here's the child. So late in the family's life, of course. And so they just assumed. And they're heading into the celebration. And they're saying his name. Surely it's going to be Zacharias. Absolutely. We're calling him Zacharias already. They're already referring to him. That's the sense of the, the terminology here. They were going to call him is actually misleading. They were calling him. They were naming him. They were referring to him as that already. We know that because verse 60 says that Elizabeth answered and said. So she replies to them. She can hear them talking. And so she replies, and they were calling him Zacharias and speaking it to Elizabeth at the beginning of the seminary, uh, the, the uh, ceremony. And so ultimately, this is a family name being assumed. And what shocks them is that a foreign name is announced. Verse 60, but his mother answered and said, no, indeed. It's hard to translate that. Absolutely not. His name shall be called John. It's emphatic in the original language. This is abrupt. Literally, no, his name will be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. Obviously, uh, after coming out of the temple, though being still mute, Zacharias had motioned to Elizabeth probably many, many times. This is what the angel said. This is what the angel did. This is how I came out. Now I'm mute because of it because I didn't believe. Obviously, he'd motioned that to his wife over and over again. And so she knew that's what his name would be. And they're bewildered. I can understand. They're saying, look, you're totally ignoring this son's heritage, and you're disconnecting him from his father's legacy and his grandfather's history. How can you do that? They're probably thinking he's going to have to deal with that stigma all his life. Why is he on the outside? Why is he strangely named? This makes no sense. The only one you've ever had, the only one you've prayed for, brought to you later in life by miraculous intervention, not carrying his dad's name, this is strange. Verse 62 they made signs to his father. You ever thought, thought about that phrase? Why were they making signs to him? That's odd. He's not deaf. But it was interesting. Whenever someone had the disease where they were muted, it was often the case that they were deaf. 
And the reason is because if you were born deaf, you obviously had a difficult time with language, and that was part of that same malady. So some in the crowd assumed that they needed to make motions to him, or maybe they just got so used to it. But they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. Verse 63, and he asked for a tablet. Asked, by the way, doesn't mean he spoke it. (laughs) He just motioned for a tablet, and he wrote as follows. His name is John. Not, we will call him John. Not, we want to name him John. Just emphatically, his name is John. It's a done deal. It was done in the temple when the angel said it. This is a great moment for him. And they are astonished, the text says. Why are they astonished? That Zacharias wouldn't give his son the family name. That's astonishing. And that both parents are so resolute in their agreement. That's astonishing. They're astonished that Zacharias being mute and likely unable to communicate all that took place in the temple was already assigning him the name permanently that Elizabeth had spoken moments ago. This is astonishing. A family name is assumed, a foreign name is announced, and the final name is assigned by Zacharias in obedience to what the angel said. And the crowd is astonished that the name was so totally different than generations of tradition. And now you know why God chose the name John. This is very thrilling. God knows how to set the stage for a dramatic entrance of his son. He does this very deliberately. By the way, John, the name means the Lord has given mercy. So it wasn't an unfamiliar name in the community or in the region, but it was certainly foreign in their family. The Lord has given grace. And listen, it signifies a unique and completely extraordinary life disconnected from the family. God doesn't want the son getting lost in the sea of family relationships. Oh, that's Zacharias' son. Oh, he's connected to that family. Oh, he's going to grow up and take over the family business. Oh, he's going to go into the temple and do the worship like his dad. No, God doesn't want that. God wants a completely unique and extraordinary name for a completely extraordinary son. Who, by the way, it says later on after he's born, verse 80, that he became strong in spirit and lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Wow. See you, Mom. He goes and lives in the desert. He is wearing prophet's clothes. He is sacrificing everything. He has taken a vow. He is gone. There aren't any family relations. You don't get attached to this kid. He is unique. And God wanted him unique. He wanted him named uniquely and not attached to the heritage because God was raising him up for a purpose. And don't you know that once that purpose was done and Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist pointed to him and said, you follow him. When a bunch of disciples were following John, I must decrease, he must increase. You follow him. And guess what God did? Just to make it clear, God lopped his head off after just a brief ministry. As one commentator said, who the child was could not be explained by his being the child of his parents. Wow. That's right. God didn't want it that way. Oh, that's Zacharias. Oh, yeah, he's of Zacharias. Oh, yeah, his grandfather. Oh, yeah, we know. No, from day one, it was to be unique. And this was to stir them up in anticipation. So a prophet lives. 
And when Zacharias said his name is John, or when he wrote it, they were all astonished. A mute spoke. (laughs) Verse 64, And at once his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. (laughs) What a moment! Nine months! Nine months of trying to form some word with his tongue and his lips. Nine months of gesturing and scribbling. Nine months of frustration. Notice the specific anatomical terms. Stoma, that's the word for mouth. Glosa is the word for tongue. What is God saying by having Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, give us those words? Because God was holding on to his lips and holding on to his tongue. Miraculously. You're not going to speak until until I've prepared your heart for the right moment. That's the point. Now God is putting an exclamation point on it. How marvelous a moment that must have been for Zacharias. I remember years ago, I woke up one morning and, uh, you know, I mean, I I need my voice for my living, (laughs) for what I do. And I've often had occasion to be a part of music ministries as well and sing a bit. So I woke up one morning and and it was a Sunday morning and I was just getting ready and and humming and singing or whatever as I typically do. And I couldn't couldn't vocalize. I I had this, um, I was kind of monotone in the lower register, which as you know is not my typical voice. Uh, I was in the lower register and I would try to intone up and everything just closed down. I couldn't make a sound. So I would speak like this in a little monotone and things like I mean, can you imagine preaching like that? It was terrible. People would fall asleep with that kind of thing. Some of you already struggle with that. This was worse. <laughs> and um, so I went to an ENT, and it was kind of scary. I mean, all of a sudden... You know, the way the vocal cords work is those little fibers need to come together like that. The flesh needs to come together and, and the vibrations then go through it as they go together and they make the sound. But for some reason it wasn't coming together and it was really nervous time. I didn't know what to think. And so I went to this ENT and he, he looked down my throat and said, yeah, you've got a couple of vocal cords that won't come together. They're swollen. I said, well, how long is that going to take? He said, well, you could, could go down in three days or a year or never. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> what do I do? He said, well, don't whisper. Whispering's worse for your voice than, than speaking. don't know if you knew that. It's harder on your vocal cords. But he said, you're just going to have to give it some rest, and then over time, you're going to have to slowly try to rehearse it a little bit at a time. Don't force it. And then, you know, it could potentially heal back to its normal deal. It took nine months. And so for the first few months of that, I really... Chose not to speak much. I was out of the teaching rotation. Of course, I couldn't sing at all, and, and I couldn't inflect. So talking to me was really odd. I couldn't inflect upward. I couldn't emphasize anything, so I'd have to use gestures. You know. It's just really weird. This is different here, right? I mean, this is God holding the lips and holding the tongue, and then all of a sudden, at the right moment, with an exclamation point, just lets them go. Why did he let him go? Because this was a moment where the affliction hit its mark. Why was he closed up? 
Because he didn't believe. Why is he opened up? Because he believes. It's that simple. Don't you love that about God? Okay, his name is John. There you go. That's what I'm after. Just obey. Just believe. Just give me your heart. Such a vivid example of how God uses affliction. And it had worked on this old patron saint. Nine months without ability to speak. And it had, it had softened him. I'm sure during that nine months there were times when he was just alone. Because after all, he's tired of gesturing at people and tired of explaining things. So he tried to be alone. And while alone, I'm sure he repented over and over again. Lord, I should have believed you. Lord, I should have believed you. Knowing in the grace of God that he needed to strengthen in his faith. And so God was strengthening his faith and letting it well up within him. And so it was pent up. Spending time alone, every time he had to make signals to Elizabeth and others, he probably wanted to pray out loud but couldn't and couldn't speak. And Elizabeth singing all the time around him, ready for this child. It must have been an humbling nine months. J.C. Ryle made this comment about how God uses afflictions in our lives. Let us take heed that affliction does us good. We cannot escape trouble in a sin-laden world, but in the time of our trouble, let us make earnest prayer that we may hear the rod and who hath appointed it, that we may learn wisdom by the rod and not harden our hearts against God. And he said this, Sanctified afflictions, says an old pastor, are spiritual promotions, end quote. Man, that's so true. It worked. Zacharias was obedient and it resulted in unrestrained praise. An uncontained wonder occurred. Notice what Luke records. Verse 65. Fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. That's what God wanted. He wanted news of it to spread. Verse 66. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? That's what God wanted. Fear came upon all. It is, it is the word for a kind of awe and reverence that makes you talk about it. It's the buzz. This is the buzz about the activity of God. In fact, it's emphatic in the Greek. Upon all, there was fear. Why is he writing it like that? Nobody missed the point. God was visiting his people. He was drawing near. They had waited a long time. And so this was the talk. This was the buzz That phrase there, by the way, at verse 66, all who heard them kept them in mind, that is the same phrase or similar terminology as when Mary, in chapter 2, hears about all these things and ponders them or treasures them in her heart. And in chapter 2, when the shepherds come and they visit Jesus in the manger, verse 51, she kept treasuring these things in her heart. That's the idea here. All the people around all the region were talking about it, buzzing about it. Theological conversation is on the rise. Everybody's asking questions. Others are answering them. The Old Testament is being opened. People are pondering these things deep within. God is making a move. That's what He wants. He wants... His people stirred up in their anticipation, their imagination, their conversation. He wants them treasuring these things, waiting, ready. It's just so kind of God to use circumstances and news like this and an event like this to be passed on one person at a time to the rest of the region to soften them. 
You know, there you are in your mundane life, going along, doing your work, and somebody comes and says, do you know what happened? What? Zacharias, the old priest. Yeah, 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 I know. He's been up there for years. Man, his wife had a son that was announced in the temple. And his, and he didn't believe. And man, he tells the story now how the angel told him things and he didn't believe it. So he got rebuked and his tongue was held. For nine months he couldn't say a word. And then all of a sudden he obeyed the angel, named his son John. His mouth was opened. Who is this kid? That's exactly what happens. Verse 66. What will this child turn out to be? Look what Luke includes. For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. Of course. That's familiar terminology. When God is doing work, he wants people excited about that work he's doing. You know, we're so pathetic. We, we, we have all this in hand, in narrative, in real life, in our hearts. And now we have the gospel. And we can't even get stirred up about it to come to church. That's problematic. We're just like them. God has to stir us up with some jolt, doesn't he? Of course, he loves that. He loves when we start talking theologically. When our conversation changes to something about his word. Wow, did you hear about that conversion? Man, did you see that testimony? That was an incredible baptism. What about what that text says? He loves that when we're all stirred up about what God is doing. You come into a church and it's not stirred up, that's a dead church. That's a church that doesn't love the Word, believe the Word, own the Word, obey the Word. You want a church not stirred up about nonsense, but stirred up about the truth. God loves that, and He set the stage perfectly for the arrival of the Messiah through the arrival of this, this boy. So, the mute, the nine-month mute, He spoke. What did he say? Well, verse 67 and following records it. We'll cover the first half in, in the rest of our time. We'll, we'll actually cover all of it, but the second half is just a repeat of what Gabriel said. Just marvelous themes. This is the praise, and it is a covenant that triumphs. Listen, this is about God's promise and his power. The same two things that were at the heart of Mary's worship. The same two things that should come out of every believer. It's promise and power. God makes promises, he will keep them. And he loves them, and we just believe that because he's God. Simply and only because he's God. And he will have the power to carry it out. You know what he loves? He loves it that no matter the world around us changing, no matter how much evil is encroaching, God has sent His Son. His Son lives within us. We believe He has the power to bring it to pass. And mockers come, don't they? Second Peter says so. Oh, they're going to come. Yeah, right. You guys just wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. Yeah, well, they waited and waited a lot longer than we did and it finally happened. And then Jesus is here and now He lives within us and He says He's coming back. Why would we doubt that when they waited longer than we're waiting so far? Look, if we're going to wait as long as the Jews did for Messiah to come... Between the time it was promised, we got a long way to go yet. We've got a lot of generations to see come to Christ. You say, oh no, I want Jesus to come back now. Well, so do I. But we live in that tension, don't we? I want Christ to come back right now, but I also want more people in the kingdom. I want Christ to come back now, but if he doesn't, I don't want to sit around and say, oh, why aren't you coming back now? God is to be trusted. Because he has the power to save and he has the power to destroy evil and he's letting evil run its course and it will happen. 
And that's what fills Zacharias' praise. Look at this. The Spirit speaks, verse 67. His father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So God's Spirit is speaking up. You want to know what He says when the Spirit speaks? Here it is. God's name is hallowed, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This, this uh, song, by the way, this statement, is in two parts. A blessing and a prophecy. The blessing is 68 through 75, and the prophecy about the son is about the child is 76 through 79. That's pretty much as simple as it gets. And so he opens up hallowing God's name. For what? For 68. For he has visited us, and look at this word, accomplished redemption for his people. Uh, we waited for God to draw near, and he has drawn near. We waited for him to accomplish redemption and he has accomplished it. Past tense, by the way. <laughs> Listen, the Spirit, when the Spirit speaks of redemption, Jesus hasn't even been born. John the Baptist has just been born. We don't even know if he's going to accomplish his mission. God knows. And so he says, he has accomplished redemption. Why? Because look, if the forerunner arrives, then it's a guarantee that the Messiah is going to arrive. And if the Messiah arrives, redemption's happening. It's a done deal. And that's how it's spoken of by the Spirit of God through Zechariah. Jesus was like that, wasn't he? When he was praying in front of the disciples, you remember? In John 17, and he said, Father, I have glorified thee on the earth Past tense. Wait a minute. He's still 24 hours before his death. That's right, because when God says it, it cannot change. Romans 8. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. That's us. Are you fully glorified yet? No. But he said it. It's done. Past tense, it's an accomplished fact. Redemption has been accomplished. Why? Because God has the power. You should never doubt God's power. Power to protect you. Power to uphold you. Power to sustain you. Grace to hold you up in the trouble, in the difficulty. When it's fierce and Satan is tempting you to doubt God's goodness. God is able now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in, his, in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. He's able. Notice he says, and he's raised up a horn of salvation. What is that? You see that word all over the Bible, don't you? A horn of salvation, the horn of salvation. Well, when, when in the reiteration of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 33 when Joseph was being spoken about and the proclamation of his blessing of his, of his own princely kingdom was being spoken about, here's what they said. The ox, which has horns, is going to be the majesty of, of Joseph. What does that mean? Well, an ox, the symbol of the horns was strength and it was immovability. You don't, you don't face off with an ox with big horns. And the passage in Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, says that he will push peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. In other words, evil is going to be driven out. That's what God has strength to do. And a kingdom of priests to serve our God in righteousness, he's going to establish. And no one is going to come against that and stop it. That's what the horn of salvation was. Hard, immovable, dangerous, ready, like an anchor. Can't be touched, can't be thwarted. 
Oh, my strength, the psalmist said in Psalm 59, 17. I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. That's it. You say, how does that apply to me? Well, really quick, turn to Ephesians 1. You must get this passage. You now have the Spirit of God living within you. You never should doubt the power of God to redeem because His Spirit is living inside of the believer. Ephesians 1, 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. There it is. If He called you, you have a hope that's not a wish. It's a hope consisting of the fact that He called you and He wants us to know the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. That's what's to come. Verse 19, And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe, which are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And then verse 21 goes on to say, look, there isn't any rule, any authority, any power, any dominion in the universe that could go above Christ, overpower Him. There isn't any name that's above Him. You have that. You have His name, His power, His authority living inside of you. That's what Zacharias was proclaiming. He's got the power to do it. And... He's praising God not just for power to redeem, but for promises kept. Notice the end of verse 69 and following. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, back to Luke 1, in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That is terminology, by the way, from Psalm 106. Anyone who comes against God and God's people, in the end loses. That was the whole point. And God had spoken it by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. This was a promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, 11-13, The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own loins. And I will establish His kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for My name. And I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. And He's speaking of that messianic throne that never ends. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Kavod, uh, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Givor, rather, not Kavod, but Givor. Mighty God. The increase of his government and peace, there won't be an end to it. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is, this is what Zechariah is praising God for. This is a promise to David. How many generations? Now he goes back even further than that. Notice verse 72. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. He goes back even further. This was a promise to Abraham of a holy covenant. Wow, to show mercy. He'd shown mercy to the fathers. He will show it again to those that come after him. Why? Because we need it. Oh, we just drift. 
We drift. And it was an oath. And what would God produce? What does he promise to produce? Verse 74, to grant us that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There it is. A permanent place. A permanent king on a permanent throne in a permanent kingdom that cannot be lost. And what's the character of the kingdom? Reverence, worship, righteousness, holiness. In the presence of God, everyone serving God and there is no more evil. It's run its course. It's done. Does he have that kind of power? Of course. Of course he does. There's one other kind of power he has. And it happens when Zacharias is just mentioning what Gabriel had told him about his son. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Now here it is. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation consisting in the forgiveness of their sins. Do you know what God's going to do? He has so much power. He's going to take darkened, unbelieving, wicked, iniquitous hearts that would never on their own turn to God and He is going to pour out mercy on their heart and change their heart. Forgive them. He's going to move upon you, draw you. He's going to point you to the Savior. His Savior is going to die for you pay the price for you, and then he's going to show you the knowledge of salvation through or consisting in the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because God is tender in his mercy. And the sunrise shines upon the dark places in a real visitation. You're in the shadow of death, he rescues you. Look, salvation isn't what the religious of the world think it is. Salvation isn't what the cultural elites think it is. It's not what the politicians think it is. Oh, everybody living on earth in multicultural human harmony. That is not victory. That's not salvation. Oh, it'd be nice. (laughs) I would love that. Love peaceful streets, wouldn't you? I'd love an administration that wasn't corrupt and would make good laws. I'd love that. But you know, whether that happens or not, and we ought to pray for it, but whether that happens or not, that's not salvation. It's not salvation in those things. You know what salvation is? Taking a dark heart, living in the shadow of death, headed for a train wreck with Almighty Holy God, and God in His tender mercy reaching down and showing you the knowledge of salvation by convicting you of your sins and turning you toward a Savior in whom you have forgiveness. And notice, forgiveness isn't a multiple time thing. One time, when you come to Christ because of His mercy, Christ's salvation is adequate. His forgiveness is sweeping. You can have forgiveness of every sin. Zacharias is thrilled because his son is going to soften hearts with the proclamation of truth and a weird and strange life. He's weird. He's out in the deserts. He's wearing the prophet's clothes and he doesn't, doesn't work with people. He's by himself. Why? Because 
he grabbed the attention and he spoke truth. And the Pharisees came out and he said, who told you to come out and repent, you bunch of snakes? He wasn't seeker sensitive. Who told you to come out? This is... This is what God wanted, to soften your heart, to show you your need. That's what His Father is excited about. Verse 79, last verse, last phrase, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wow. You want peace? It's internal, not external. It's forgiveness. And the forerunner's here. <laughs> Zechariah says, he's here. And if he's here, then salvation has been accomplished. God had promised and he is faithful. Does he have the power to carry it out? Oh, it's already a done deal. If the angel said it, she got pregnant, the child came, and the angel told Mary, you're going to be with child, then that child's coming. And if that child's coming, redemption is accomplished. It has happened. And that proves that God is always faithful to accomplish His purposes. He never lies to His people in His Word. He wants us to get thrilled about it, stirred up about it. What's our problem here 2,000 years later when we sometimes just... It falls on us with such complacency. This is so exciting because we're 2,000 years later. This, this Savior who hasn't even... We haven't even got to His birth narrative yet... He's come and He's died and He was buried and He rose for our justification so that God had approved of His death and we can be forgiven and covered with His righteousness by faith alone. That's happened. And you're here. If you're in Christ, that's you. When someone says, is God powerful enough? You ought to say, oh, you have no idea. Absolutely Nothing is impossible with God. Look, if He could transform this ugly, dark heart, He can transform yours. You say, but will God do it? Because He promised so long ago and Jesus hasn't returned yet. Not even worried about that. He's coming. Furthermore, Jesus prayed, Father, I want my people to be with me in heaven so they can see my glory. You know what? Whatever Jesus prays for, He gets. And He prayed it. So it's a done deal. Can't be lost. Man, what a narrative. And it simply ends with this. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. That is to say, inside he was vigorous in his task. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Man, he was on task. God set him aside, named him a strange name outside of his family. He lived a strange life. And when he hit the scene, it was explosive. Repent, he said. For one is coming whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And he is a judge and a savior. And you better listen up and you better repent. What a way to stage this whole thing. You can't get any more drama than that. And so next time, of course, we will hit upon a text in Matthew about Joseph and what he is doing in all of this. And it's going to be thrilling before we actually come back to the birth narrative. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for teaching us what true worship is. It's believing you and extolling your character of faithfulness and your power. 
Wow, what a rich time it must have been. And, and now we see it. We live in the reality of it. It's history to us, but it's real history. Use it to inform us even this day. Encourage us who are in Christ to have greater faith. And Lord, use it as you have now for centuries to prepare the way for a softening in the hearts of those who are hardened, even in our midst this morning. Soften them. They live in darkness. They don't know it. Even if it's religious darkness, it's still darkness nonetheless. And it's a shadow. And it's moral bankruptcy. And they're headed for disaster if they breathe their last apart from you. So use the gospel, even proclaimed by Zacharias so long ago. Use it to soften and bring about repentance. And may your tender mercy fall upon hardened hearts this morning and that you would forgive their sin. If they will but repent and turn to you in faith. Thank you for this sweet account. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.